Elizabeth Stone against Mario Zagunis is on green, the All-American Affair. So obviously we all had just watched Star Wars and were in love with it. And we thought that was the coolest thing ever and went right over. I think I wore a little dress and, and little patent leather shoes or something because I was 10 years old and I wanted to make a good impression and it was just a mess. Wow, fantastic bout. Eliza really kept her composure at the end. Yeah, really brilliant. impressive. Welcome to Flame Bears, the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. I'm your host, Jamie. In this episode, U.S. Sabre fencer Eliza Stone discusses how a small pizza shop changed the trajectory of her family's life and how her siblings fueled her to become one of the top fencers in the world. Eliza also discusses why it's so important for her to view fencing as something to be celebrated regardless of the outcomes and shares what it's like when things don't go to plan. My name is Eliza Stone. I'm a Sabre fencer for the U.S. team. I've been fencing for almost 20 years now, but now seven years on the national team. I'm number four in the world, and that's about that. She's being ridiculously modest. Though this Princeton poli-sci major has been playing the sport since she was 10, I haven't and wanted to better understand what saber fencing is and what it involves. So saber fencing, just like easy picture, it's a right-of-way sport. Obviously, you're, you have, you know, swords, sabers, but the right-of-way means that you can't just touch your opponent and get a point. You have to be somehow in control of the action. So you have to be the one attacking or you have to be the one who's just blocked an attack and won back the action somehow. So if you can imagine, it gets pretty fast with the handing back and forth of the priority of the action. So whoever can set, the, set up traps and be convincing in them and outthink and outmove is going to be the one who'll win. You also get to wear a very attractive beekeeper suit. <laughs> I don't think any women were at the table when they designed tight white pants as the fencing uniform. <laughs> this is Gracie, Eliza's sister. Disclaimer, Gracie is my close friend and classmate at the Harvard Kennedy School, so it's a real honor for me to work with both her and her family. Eliza is the oldest of a trio of siblings who all fenced for Princeton and are extremely successful in their own rights. Eliza credits her spot at the top of the world's charts to her siblings who play the sport alongside her growing up. Here's Gracie. Hello, I am Gracie. I am Eliza's sister, first and foremost on this call. I was fortunate to grow up in a fencing family along with her and my brother, and I'm definitely retired from sports now, but it's very cool to be part of kind of a broader support system and community that doesn't really end. We started fencing all around the same time, so I was like 10 years old, Gracie was like six years old, something crazy young going to the first club and bouting each other and realizing how hard fencing was and how annoyed we were at each other for outsmarting each other. It caused a lot of fights, but it, they were good fights. You basically get to, you know, beat up each other in a legal setting and it's fantastic. Having two siblings who were always kind of 
pushing and beating me, it really makes you want to work to be better and to be able to beat them. For me, it was the competition, friendly or otherwise, from my siblings. Like, we pushed each other, and it was really healthy for us. And I think it taught us a lot of life lessons. I would definitely not be an athlete right now if my siblings hadn't fenced. Who knew that sibling rivalry could literally push you to become a world-class athlete? Turns out that Mr. Stone, Eliza and Gracie's dad, had a pretty good idea that it might. This is where the pizza shop comes in. My name is Robert Stone, and I have the good fortune of being father to Eliza Stone and to Grace Stone and to two other of their siblings, Robert Jr. and Catherine. We homeschooled the kids, and we needed a sport that they could do as a family team. And homeschooling fit our classical curriculum and fit the abilities of the kids. All children like to fight with sticks, and so everyone wanted defense. And we got started on it. We weren't really sure how, which sport to choose, but we were in a pizza parlor in Chicago one day, and a local fencing academy had little brochures there. And it struck us, hey, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. At the time, I think the girls had ballet. I was terrible at ballet. But we were looking for something for my brother because he hated ballet. And we went into that pizza shop by accident, because pizza's great. And we saw this flyer for a local fencing club. And the classes were starting that Friday for beginners. So obviously, we all had just watched Star Wars and were in love with it. And we thought that was the coolest thing ever and went right over. I think I wore a little dress and, and little patent leather shoes or something because I was 10 years old and I wanted to make a good impression. We actually stumbled on a club where a week after we arrived, one of the ex-national team fencers from Bulgaria arrived to be the new coach, Christo Atropolsky. And he just took us right under his wing and he molded us and kept us really loving fencing for years as we grew up. So we were very lucky. While luck may have had something to do with it, turns out that training with siblings can be tremendously psychologically beneficial from the perspective of talent development. I spoke with Dr. Robin Taylor, a senior lecturer in coaching and performance at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK to find out more. His doctoral thesis focused specifically on the role of siblings in athletic talent development. Obviously, rivalry and competition often gets pinned to the sibling relationship. And for obvious reasons, there are lots of examples of how rivalry has helped, but it's not necessarily always going to be the way. And some of my research has really said that we need to understand each sibling set individually to be able to maximise our, our opportunity to use them. But ultimately, they they can potentially portray a function that is very holistic in the growth of our athletes. So we often talk about like physical, technical, tactical development, and there's a lot of work now around sort of psychological skill development and social development. One of the things my research has highlighted is that actually siblings are very much, we call it sort of biopsychosocial agents of development. They can help develop the physical, the psychological, and the social in an interactive environment. So all these things that came out is that siblings are actually a really useful environment to do that in because they play together, they, they mess around together, whereas parents are maybe a bit more psychosocial because they won't necessarily engage in that activity, but they might support the, the young athlete. Siblings, like peers, 
are often engaging in those activities together. So you talk about your uh, your fencer that's coming onto the onto the show, and, mm-hmm. and you know, they probably they interacted a lot probably as children. Now I'm having to say probably because I'm speculating. I don't know her relationships. It sounds like they they interacted, and actually that interaction created some of these opportunities for skills to develop. You know, like some resilience to be able to consistently compete and maybe lose and and get name called or you know some of those sort of classic things we associate with siblings but also probably things like feedback interact collaboration communication you know they might have talked through elements of the of their competitive approach or their tactics to try and beat an opponent or if they're learning a new technique there's the chance for things like sort of observations mentoring cooperation and obviously the essence of having someone to do it against. It seems Mr. Stone instinctively recognized the benefits of this dynamic in his own children, and this leap of faith really paid off. It made them very close, and it made them more competitive. The fencing does foster sibling rivalry. So when they're not trying to kill one another, they work very well as a team. For example, as you know, in 2013, all three of the four were on the Princeton NCAA team that won first place. And they were all on the Sabre squad, and that Sabre squad did the best of the three squads. So they can do remarkable things when they decide to work together. And that was just the beginning. Eliza has achieved so much since 2013, including a team gold medal in the 2014 World Championships, and an individual bronze at the 2018 World Fencing Championships. In January of 2019, she achieved the number one individual ranking in the U.S. for women's sabre. And in June of 2019, she won her first gold medal at the Pan American Games. She's currently ranked number six in the world. I wanted to know what it felt like to win all of these medals. So in 2018, I got the bronze world championships in China, and that was definitely the best moment, I think, because it wasn't just about winning the medal. It was that that was at the end of five years of very up and down fencing. I started in 2013 trying to make the 2016 team, didn't make it. It was a bit of a bummer. And then I had to kind of figure out how to keep going, and it was quite the uphill Thing. And then finally, like after revamping sports psychology training, it comes back and I get this bronze at World Championships. I think our whole family and current and past coaches were all on Skype at some point watching that at like 4 a.m. from the U.S. So I think for me, it was a really interesting mix where everyone's screaming and jumping up and down and wanting to celebrate the moment because it's such a validation of all of the journey that Liza's sharing today. And there's just so much that's out of your control to like remind ourselves not to validate all of those years of work based on the stars aligning in, in truly a few seconds. Sabre's a very fast sport and that it didn't further value or devalue all the work she'd put in. And like we'd still think of her as the same person, even if, you know, she'd done a different move or reflex in that second because it comes down to so little for so long. So I think just trying to balance that like complete celebration, but not feeding into that system that's like, oh, we're only celebrating because you won. It's like more of a celebration of those five years. 
Though being an Olympian absolutely comes with its perks, it's clear in talking with Mr. Stone that he didn't grab the pizza shop flyer with the intent of turning his children into world-class athletes. The real value of fencing for him was as a vehicle to teach his children life lessons. I asked him why it was so important that Eliza sees fencing in this manner, as something beyond a means to make it on the podium. I want her to enjoy what she's doing, and I want her to understand that it's important. She's fencing not for herself, just to get another medal. She's fencing in part for her family that supports her, for the family team. She's fencing, in a sense, for homeschooling. And, of course, Eliza is patriotic. She's also fencing for her country. It's good discipline. It's good for developing their character. Math tests and science tests just don't do that. It's not something you want to do all your life. It's something that you learn from. And Eliza's still learning from it. While sex and increasingly gender may play a divisive role in other sports, according to Eliza and Gracie, it's not that way in fencing. I thought it was fun that I could beat them. You know, if I could beat that six foot tall guy over there, cool. It was because I learned that move and I worked hard. It was no stress, there was no tension about it. The best part about fencing is that it's 75% psychological and mental. I've actually been shielded from a lot of issues because of the privilege of sport. You can beat whoever you want, and it really just comes down to who's smarter in that moment, who made the right decision. It has nothing to do with who you're fencing, guy, girl, older, younger. Everyone's equal based on your intellect and your willpower in that moment. It doesn't matter who you're, who you're across from. It's the person who makes the good choice right then, right there. Nothing else matters. You're not put in a little box, but you often train guys and girls together regularly. It's something I've always loved about the sport is that you're not, you cannot at all tell who's going to win just by looking at two people's like body structure, which I know can really impact a lot of other sports more strongly. Something that really drew me to fencing was there's no constant line drawn between men and women in the sport. I really do think that fencing helped give me my voice. Some people think it's rude, but it's, to me, very helpful when you're competing is you actually do scream. And I remember really struggling with that at first. I was like, oh, it's rude. It's weird. People will judge me. And my coach was just like, no, like, if you're feeling it in the moment, scream. And the moment you get off, after every bout, you have to shake people's hands and go to dinner. <laughs> so I think just a lot of the confidence drive that I have comes from that. And it's really fascinating talking to other women about issues they've had and realizing that even though I have so many others of my own, sports really helped me avoid a few very common pitfalls that I see amongst my peer group of women. Though men and women fencers may be on an even playing field in terms of skill and wit, they aren't when it comes to their bodies or when seeking benefits like family planning. There's really no time to stop and have a baby. So if you want to, you have to really plan it for the exactly right moment, right after the Olympics. Hope that you can get back, you know, into your training, make everything come back together miraculously in time for the next one. It's just a huge stress. And eventually female athletes end up having to choose whether they're going to continue with their sport or stop and have a family. Very few can 
do that crazy schedule of balancing both. And there's a lot of social pressure, biological clock pressure to just, you know, why are you still doing this? You know, you're 30 years old, stop and have a family, stop and be responsible. And it's difficult to listen to that, but then stay true to doing the best you can in your sport. Yeah, it's the shortened career. Guys are competing, you know, almost till 40, although that's a bit rare. Whereas a lot of the women do retire at a younger age or miss an Olympics in order to have a family and then just really just make it back and compete again <laughs> with the kid on the podium. In gymnastics, for example, or figure skating, you kind of peak when you're 16, 17, 18. In fencing, you won't peak until you're 26 to 32. 26 is kind of young because of all the mental aspects. So you have to kind of optimize your physical and mental maturity. And unfortunately, it doesn't line up well for other life planning. Elite athletes are obviously well-trained, highly scheduled, ridiculously hardworking people who have access to so much and get invited to so many different things. But what happens behind the scenes or when the cameras are off? It's 365 days a year of training and focus to come to competition 15 times in that year. So you really have to put your work in. But another thing is, even though you are this kind of athlete, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like you're one of the same crowd you always were. So when I go to national competitions now, a lot of younger girls will come up and ask me questions and want some advice. And that's a huge honor because I used to be that girl. There's a lot of being a role model in, in athletics. You want to be an example for how someone competes with respect, wins with grace, loses with dignity. You pass that on to people in the younger generation. Try to be a teacher the way people were for you, which is a little difficult, but you work on it. Despite all of the accolades, Olympians in the off-season, as well as when the camera turns off, are often overlooked. So I thought I'd ask how our community of listeners could better support them. I think it's just switching our perception of Olympians, and I think in a positive way, too. And hopefully that can segue into more people getting into sports and more people thinking they can be Olympians, because it's kind of this maybe, I hope, healthy double-edged thing of Olympians might need a check-in, they might need a call, they might need, you know, they're going through the exact same things that we all are, and we don't all have it together. But also secondarily, like anyone can potentially be an Olympian should a long line of stars align, right? There are so many economic obstacles, life obstacles, physical obstacles, etc. But I think by putting these Olympians so, so high on a pedestal, we both don't think about them enough to just check in on a daily basis, give calls, support like we would just our friend groups. And then also, I think I've talked to a lot of young women who never start a sport. They think, oh, I could just never be good, which is definitely not true. Definitely not true. Like, I would never have succeeded in probably a, a sport with a ball. <laughs> but you just find the sport you're good in and then work on it and work on it and then you're good. This takes commitment. As we gear up for Tokyo, the games are still so uncertain. In light of COVID-19, I wanted to know how they stay positive. COVID's just such a marathon and you have no idea how long it is. So just kind of like going day by day by still using like, okay, really specific short-term goals and still being really proud of that. I think from talking to these 
empower people during COVID. Everyone's expectations for themselves are so high, but we give empathy to our friends. So I think just hoping we all shift that inner voice to be a little kinder and like, it's okay, actually, you know, we're not incredibly fit and at our best while locked into our apartments or we're not peeking at our careers or whatever it might be. I'm really looking forward to the Olympics happening, but, you know, in a safe way. But hopefully that can be a way for everyone to be distracted from COVID and the craziness of the world in the end. Fingers crossed that it happens, but again, you never know. So let's just keep our uh, blinders on, focused on what we can control and not worry about the rest. Touche. Thanks for tuning in to Flame Bears, the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. For more behind-the-scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Flame Bears. If you missed last week's episode with Pan American table tennis champ, Tommy Leonelli, go back and check it out in either English or Spanish. We have two versions, so make sure you tune into the one for you. If you haven't done so yet, please leave us a positive review on your listening platform. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you to my amazing friend, Gracie Stone, for your incredible support. And to my teammates, Sarah Saad and Hayek Serato for their help. I couldn't do this without you. Thanks as always to Dino Catano for his mentorship. We'll catch you on our next episode.